I don't even remember what I wrote, so I'm really excited to see what the fuck I came up with last time I looked at this comic. Let's talk about it. Welcome back to Check This Place, a podcast where we record rimming on company time. Today, we are going to be discussing comic number 3.4, Home Opener, which was originally posted on June 22nd, 2016. I am Secret, and today I am joined by my esteemed colleague, Tomato. Hello, how are you? I'm okay, tomato. I'm 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 all right. Some things are not so great, but you want to know what? I'm sitting in a in a dark hotel room, sans microphone. So how bad could it be? I mean, sounds like the lap of luxury to me. Well, the the no microphone part is probably going to fuck up this podcast a little, just a little. And good news, I now have a microphone, so we can just switch in terms of which of us sounds like garbage. I'm very excited about that. At last, I have microphone. uh, Unfortunately, the only word coming to my mind is supremacy, which I don't like, but uh, that's where I've ended up. What happens in Home Opener from June 22nd, 2018? I'll tell you, over scenes of the gang's big trip to one of Jack's preseason hockey games, Biddy expounds on how wild it is that he ended up where he is. He means sleeping with Jack, of course, but he doesn't say that out loud for his vlog audience. Later, Jack and Shitty attend a Samwell men's hockey game, during which Biddy manages to nudge another player. The two find Biddy's act of daring so exciting that Shitty, like, tosses a bunch of french fries up in the air, and then some of them hit some guy in the face. Every other person watching this game hates them. Back in the locker room, Jack signs one of his jerseys for whiskey and has a stilted conversation with Biddy, who agrees he'll see Jack at the house for the after party. Whiskey, huh? Whiskey. I mean, it's just like, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't take any element of this comic seriously, like, at all. It's purely all just like, Jesus fucking Christ, reading this webcomic. And that's not to say that I don't think that things about it are good, or things about it are bad, but they're good. It's just to say that nobody in the real world is named Whiskey, so... You know, I don't have to pronounce his name correctly either. I mean, I actually think it adds an, a debonair air of mystery to him, so I'm all for it. Well, as we'll see as we continue reading, this character is only a debonair air of mystery. That's it. For a brief moment, you think, wow, a glimmer of something else? And the answer is absolutely not. So speaking of one-dimensional characters, here we are finally introduced to the legend of Fry Guy, a long-suffering, cruel victim of fate. So I think probably we should, like, explain who is Fry Guy. I think necessary for people who, like, weren't in fandom at this time, because I don't know that the legend of Fry Guy has lived that long beyond the incessant posting about him. If you're looking at this comic... Who is Fry Guy? Where is Fry Guy? What's going on? Once upon a time, a dude who looks like all the other dudes was sitting watching a Samuel hockey game for some fucking reason. And Shitty and Jack 
got so excited by Biddy's anodyne performance that, as you mentioned before, they just fucking throw a bunch of French fries in the air and hit this man in the face. And he has a funny little reaction where he makes a little face like, "Ah." He doesn't have a name. He does have this person he's sitting next to who is a dark-skinned person. I think it's implied that it's a woman, maybe. In terms of physics, I just cannot imagine there's any way that these fries could possibly have hit this guy in the face. Like, this is pure cartoon logic. Like, I guess if you look at the, uh, if you look at the first panel where we see Jack and Shitty from behind, Shitty's eating fries. And then at the very end of that panel, after Biddy nudges number 32, looks like this is somebody named Herrera. Doesn't matter. Not on any identifiable hockey team. Like, out of shock, I guess Shitty tosses some fries directly upward. But then they somehow also go all the way into the the next row when Shitty jumps up into the air. Okay, I think here on Physics Talk at Check Displeased, I think what he does is he's holding either like a paper cone or a paper receptacle of fries. And he gets so excited that he crumples it in his hand as he like raises his fists in the air. So he sends fries out in a sort of horrible arc. And it just so happens that some of them are released earlier than others. And so they end up hitting this guy in the face. But you're right. It's not drawn particularly convincingly. But I think we're supposed to be so overcome by joy at Biddy's little, like, mad face, the previous panel, where he's going, because eh! he just hit someone, that we're just supposed to take Fry Guy's pain in stride, you know? What's a little Fry Guy Fry guy hit in the face with cold, greasy Fry when Biddy uh, nudged a, a guy? That's not a euphemism, unfortunately. You know what would have been really funny is if we had done a whole spoof of like serious podcasts where we like tried to recreate this to see if we could get the fries to go in the right way. We try to predict like how warm and congealed the fries would be like at what point in the game, if should he got them at the beginning of the game. And then, and like really, really seriously, like some sort of like elaborate collegiate hockey. In 1947, the French fry, did you know tomato that they're called French fries, not because they're from France, but because they're cut in a manner of preparation that is called Frenching. They are they are fries that have been French. Also not a euphemism, tragically. To me, this is actually kind of like a charming, funny, like, haha, like, oh, it's a comic sort of moment. And then this fandom, this very fandom tomato, they took this one weird off to the side nobody no nothing haha deadpan man sketch guy and memed him into a second life and then a second grave and then a third and then a fourth is rough yeah i remember he comes back in the comic, but like, yeah, people are just like cutting and pasting this guy into like all sorts of shit. I looked it up. There are 10 fan fictions on AO3 where he is a character, like not its tags, like, you know, LOL Fry Guy 2 or whatever, but like actually he's like a character in the comic. It's There's one Kent Parsons slash Fry Guy. I did not 
look into what that is. I just saw that somebody posted it within the past two years, I guess. All of this to say, he'll be back, this this fry man. I remember being like, ha ha, fry guy. Another fun little wink at the audience. Another Johnson, if you will, although less fourth wall breaking. I didn't hate the memeing of him so much as I was about to hate every single piece of Checkley's fandom interaction that I saw across my path at all. He was like a, another casualty of, OMG, cinnamon roll too pure for this world, Eric Biddle problems. I'm surprised there's only 10 fix. I mean, he's definitely like around more than that. Or at least that was my impression. I mean, to me, this is just kind of like what fandom is, what fandoms do. I think it's possible that this is like particular to Chef Please in the sense that, number one, the comic had months and months and months long hiatuses. Now, did they ever have a hiatus as long as our hiatus? No. So back off, Ngozi. But I will say that like, yeah, this is kind of what fandoms do. They manufacture just like bullshit things to cling to that are sort of irrelevant to the actual thing when there's like a months long hiatus or when everybody is so fervently fixated on a text, but the text itself actually is like not that meaty and there's not that much going on. People just comb through the whole fucking thing try to find whatever it is that they can latch onto. And now me, the things that I latch onto are obviously like Jack Zimmerman starts a bottom separatist commune. No, he doesn't have enough initiative to start one. He moves to one that's already started. But other people are more text-based and they're looking through the text and they discover Fry Guy. Although this guy was actually like quite a thing from his first appearance. People were like, ooh, ooh, very good. Clapping, (laughs) little clapping. (laughs) But like, yeah, this is what fandoms do basically when they are completely over the top, balls to the wall about any particular thing. They start digging up whatever nonsense they can and like pushing inside jokes into it until you feel really overstuffed with uh inside jokes much the same way that jackson Roman feels overstuffed with do i want to say pie <laughs> or something else oh man it's hard for me to remember low these halcyon days but wow that's not how that phrase works anyway whatever it's hard to re- me to remember this long ago i feel like when we recorded last you know a year and a half or two years ago, I was like, Pashaw, that was no time ago. And now I'm like, I've lived through the wars. I have no idea what happened before yesterday. But I do remember there being something sort of delightful about this look at the way Samuel men's hockey is treated outside of the little bubble of the comic in the same way that I got a lot of joy out of knowing that like Holster doesn't like Jack, that the lacrosse team is like, Oh my God, these fucking hockey players. Because I guess there's like a little bit of an outsider, you know, POV going on potentially. So I remember enjoying that, but fandom didn't run with that. Will a Jack Zimmerman signed jersey be worth a lot someday? Uh, I wrote down no. Someone should write that eBay listing. I think that would be like a fun little fic, but I don't know, man, probably not. Oh, that, that actually would be a fun little fic if you, like, found a way to tie it into something like Whiskey's character development or something, like, especially if you knew a little bit about how, like, eBay worked or, like, the, the signature marketplace or whatever. Here's the thing. 
I don't think this would be worth a lot. I really just cannot imagine that a signed jersey of any hockey player would be worth a lot. I feel like it would be worth a couple hundred bucks, maybe. Mm-hmm. A jersey, like a an, an NHL replica jersey, costs probably like a couple hundred bucks at this point anyway. So... Actually, that's probably not a bad thing to look up. Keep talking. I'll look it up. Very good. I'll vamp. I do think that there's like a way to make an argument that sure, someday it could be worth a lot of money if Jack Zimmerman has like a particularly successful career and this is signed early in his career and there's a resurgence of interest in him as like the first out gay hockey player, blah, blah, blah. Like I think there and also as bad Bob Zimmerman's kid, like I think there are reasons that it could become a bidding war, but I don't think that like, hmm, this polyester with Sharpie on it. Probably not inherently valuable, even graced with Jackson Merman's beautiful name. Should I keep vamping? I don't have that much more to say. Anyway, let's talk about what Whiskey's doing when he sells this uh, this jersey. He's like down and out, tried to make it in the minor leagues, but he just never got to the NHL. Finally, he's like, fuck it. I'm gonna go be a, I don't know, what do hockey players do? He's gonna go be like a consultant at a winery or some, some shit. He like knows no spreadsheets and uh he's cleaning out his attic when his live-in lover dies i don't know and he's like ah this memory of my time in college before i knew who i was and that fucking meddling eric biddle i'm done with all of this i'm gonna sell this jersey so i never have to think about him again and then he makes like 37.50 a current price for like an NHL jersey is like 175 to $200 retail for a new one not ruined by Jack Zimmerman's signature. Jack Zimmerman is probably going to sign like hundreds of jerseys in his career. If you think about it, this kid already bought the $200 jersey. Actually, if I'm being honest, in 2016, they were probably more like 145 Inflation. The way that the market for anything works is that what something is worth is what you can sell it to somebody for. That's how anything works. So you want to know what? Prove me wrong, whiskey. That said, here's the deal. Autographed items are not that reliable a market for people who trade in collectibles broadly construed because they cannot really be authenticated. It's very, very easy to fake somebody's signature Unless it's like truly, uh, I don't know, through some kind of official channel or something, Whiskey is never going to be able to convince anyone that he's selling this jersey to (laughs) that actually Jack Zimmerman signed this jersey and that like he didn't sign it. And this is all with the variables that there's enough of a market to buy a signed Jack Zimmerman jersey that this is something that somebody actually wants. Yeah, we're seeing here that Jack is signing the jersey There's a podcast that I listen to called Talking Simpsons, where the guys who do it are nerds, and they're always talking about the dumb little collectible things that they buy and sell. And yeah, the bottom line is that I've heard can't really authenticate something like a signature because they're easy to fake and you can just there's no way to do it pretty much. And also Jack Zimmerman in his life is a hockey player, famous hockey player is going to sign about like 5,000 things. Well, we beat that horse. We beat it dead, tomato. 
I beat it dead. I have a question, though. If, if Jack Zimmerman's jersey is not Whiskey's Beanie Baby investment for his future retirement, then what is he doing getting this signed jersey from Jack? What's going to happen with Whiskey here is that he's being set up in the comic as a kind of Jack Zimmerman-like character. It's not real prominent because this is like not only a secondary, not only a tertiary, but like a quartiary character. Quartiary. You know what I mean. He's he's really truly like we're at like the the way bottom of the and there's more to come by the way. So we're gonna like get even lower on the scale of like does this character matter? No, this is not a real well developed plot line. But Whiskey is very, very talented. He's a Jack Zimmerman-like player uh, in the sense that he's said to be scoring very well and doing very well, like, at hockey at a couple of points later in the comic. And then also, Biddy catches him making out with another guy. And then Biddy tries to lure him into a conversation about it. He doesn't want to talk about it. And then at the end of the comic, Whiskey says to Biddy, thanks for not making me talk about this. And Biddy is like, huh? And that's the whole thing. But between the being into guys, I guess, and also being good at hockey, we see that there's some affinity being created between Whiskey and Jack. And so I think it's also interesting, oh, in this other version of the comic where things matter and setups have consequences and emotions do things. I think there'd be something really interesting about setting up Whiskey as a Jack fan and then at odds with Biddy. Like, I think that there's a potentially really interesting tension there. Another little crumb that leads to, yes, that's right, several thousand feet away from a gingerbread house somewhere, just the middle of the woods. Can't get back home again, but you can't get to the oven either. You're just in the woods. In the woods forever, occasionally you see something, you're like, is that gingerbread? But no, it's a sort of cinnamon-colored rock. Oh, I could go for some gingerbread right about now. (laughs) Well, I don't have any. I'm giving myself future editing so that I sound suave and sophisticated instead of like a hot mess. We've talked about Biddy's vlog before and how it's potentially an interesting device, but like not doesn't really get there because it doesn't tend to add much other than a narrative framing, which is not always doing anything. But I think in this particular strip, it's doing something quite interesting. The whole strip and the next several strips following this one are going to engage with this idea of being seen and remaining unseen, about presenting yourself in public life, in your professional life or in the world, and then having a private life, in this case, a secret queer private life. And it feels like it deeply matters and, in fact, is being highlighted because of the way that Biddy carefully isn't mentioning his relationship with Jack on the vlog. Like, I think it actually does something really interesting because we, the readers, are aware that they're in a relationship, right? So all of a sudden, the dramatic irony between what the people around Biddy know and what we know is really present and really delicious. And I think that emotionally, there's something really interesting happening here in terms of Ngozi playing with the reader's emotions and with Biddy and Jack's emotions, placing us in a similar category of secret keeper. Uh, And I really like that. I think it's really well done. I wish that the vlog had been more developed. I don't have to, you know, get into that old chestnut right now. But this is one way that I think it was effective. And I think it's especially interesting and effective as a way to think about then the parasocial relationship, like between the fandom and the comic, which conspiracy theory time we'll talk about 
after the second half of this year and being seen and what being seen means in queer media, et cetera, et cetera. You actually just sent me an article about queer comics from a queer perspective where someone was talking about how great this comic was. I guess it's top of mind for me in the way that this comic makes me feel unseen and angry. Oh yeah, that article was not good. It, it was it was like not even well written. Um, hold on, I'm gonna crack open this free can of water that the hotel has given me. Free water in a can? My God! And Wi-Fi that cuts out. I had to buy this cookie for myself though. So this is interesting to me because right now, as we're recording this podcast, which is um early February, uh, 2023. There is a controversy happening in the NHL concerning Pride Night. Pride Night is effectively a night when the players on any given team wear some pride-colored gear or whatever, and then also you can buy it from the team. In effect, like, truly, that's basically what it is. It's like, buy some gay hockey stuff. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, that's in practice what it ends up being. It, maybe it contra a hot take or whatever. Well, listen, sometimes the players use rainbow-colored tape, and if that's not support, I don't know what is. Okay? I've actually lost track of that, like, one guy who came out. So um, I don't even know if he's, like, currently on an NHL roster. It's a gesture, effectively, from NHL management to mostly queer fans that we see you. It's effectively a PR move because as we've said many, many, many times on this podcast, the NHL is ridiculously homophobic. And indeed the controversy around Pride Night at the moment is that specifically on the uh, Philadelphia Flyers, there are players who say that because of their religious beliefs, they do not want to participate in the pride-themed activities because they don't support homosexuality and its relatives, and therefore they are not going to be part of the team's effectively PR exercise in doing outreach to communities that probably know they aren't exactly the centerpiece of the NHL commercial audience. The NHL commissioner, Gary Bettman, Somebody who we don't talk about that often on this podcast, but he's the man who is in charge of professional hockey in the United States and Canada, pretty much. A man who people love to hate, by the way. Like, people love to hate him for usually pretty good reasons. I mean, you have to figure anybody who's pretty much like a major professional sports executive is probably just not that great a human being. For the same reasons that anybody who's climbed up into a particular position of power probably isn't. Having said that, however, Gary Bettman has come out and said that the NHL is not going to force people who don't agree with being gay to participate in their Pride Night outreach exercise. I don't subscribe to The Athletic, but luckily... Hot tip, everybody, if you inspect Element, you can read things behind things all the time. It's all there, the HTML. So Gary Bettman says things like, it's important to be inclusive, and therefore it's important to be inclusive of people who hate gay people. Okay, he doesn't say that in so many words, but he does literally say we need to be inclusive of people's different beliefs, and this is part of that. And then he says, if you choose not to 
go to Pride Night, then, you know, you're not necessarily a bigot. You pick and choose the causes that are important to you. The ones you don't choose to do don't necessarily make you bigoted, misogynistic, or homophobic, or racist. Just so to be clear, like, yes, if you choose not to participate in Pride Night because you think that gay people shouldn't exist religiously, that's, that is, that is homophobia. That's what that is. But Gary Batman doesn't think so. That's all. I just really thought that the like part of being diverse and welcoming, this is a quote, part of being diverse and welcoming is understanding the differences between people who think gay people are allowed to exist and people who don't. This is quite a messy situation because that's true. In some ways, I don't necessarily know that forcing somebody who's actively homophobic to participate in a fully corporate publicity and PR exercise is necessarily doing that much. Although coming out and saying basically, of course, you know, we can't force our players to do anything, but we're deeply disappointed that this person doesn't want to participate or that there would be anybody in the National Hockey League who wouldn't want to support like members of the LGBT plus community. That would be a much stronger and better way of of basically sidestepping this. All of this, I think, however, wraps back into check, please, because the meaning behind what's happening with Jack and Biddy, particularly in this comic, but also through the entire run of this semester up to them, like coming out to all of their friends, spoiler, at the end of the semester, is pretty much that... They are in the closet about their relationship, and Jack is in the closet about his sexuality specifically, not for no reason. (laughs) There are literally people on NHL teams now in 2023, so a full six and a half years after this was posted online, and something like seven and a half years after it was supposed to be taking place, which is like a galaxy in terms of like, legal rulings and like public opinion shifting around like, I don't know, gayness and professional sports or whatever. The idea that they are in the closet and it is merely because of some lack of courage or personal will or like they just had to come around to see that everybody would support them anyway. That's maybe why where this is going is a little bit frustrating. The uh, Philadelphia hockey team now has people on it who believe that homosexuality is like not okay and they don't want to participate in a one night only like PR event. So the idea that Jack actually is in a context where he probably has co-workers who believe that this would make him like a bad person and then destroy the interpersonal dynamics on the actual team is an actual real thing. And I think everybody who would have been reading Check Please in 2016, when this is being posted, probably is aware of this. So the meaning of what's going on in terms of Biddy being coy about their relationship on his vlog and them having this awkward moment with like a culminating fist bump in the locker room, that's the background for what's happening here. Right. And in particular, as we I mean, we talked about this before on the podcast, but this this charge that like it was never about homophobia or whatever. 
meaning the comic, this is precisely what makes that obviously untrue. The fact that Biddy and Jack are stepping around discussing their relationship, both for interpersonal reasons, but also in the context of sort of societal level violence is real. There is something sort of interesting and escapist in the idea that like, if you come out, everyone will support you for real and it's fine. That I understand why it's appealing to some people, as we've discussed before as well. But I think that that is, I don't know, I don't know, irresponsible, but certainly not nuanced way of thinking about this context in which Ngozi is unpacking what it means to be publicly gay and to question sort of these really, really intense structures of masculinity and structures of violence and so on and so forth. Do you have anything to say about Biddy checking that guy, quote unquote? In this sort of violent context, right, this context of masculinity, the context of the locker room, etc., that we that we've talked about before, Biddy checking this guy is supposed to be this really big thing. Like, that's why Jack and Shitty hit Fry Guy in the face with these congealed potatoes. Um, Ngozi even mentions it in the comic notes. But when we actually look at it, Biddy here is at his most Biddy, which is to say he looks like a little toddler who for the very first time in his life is nudging another man with his shoulder, participating in, you know, the rituals, the rituals, etc. And I think it's really interesting, both that this is so celebrated within the comic, that also, like, as part of the process of Jack and Biddy coming to terms with the fact that they're in a relationship and what that will mean, Biddy is adopting this, like, heteronormative masculinist violence or whatever, although he's not doing a very good job at it. And also that he literally looks like a baby. He looks like a little baby with his, like, very determined little baby face. And I don't know how to reconcile that with the fact that we're supposed to be celebrating his assimilation into violence. Like, I just don't know what to do with it, I guess, because he is successfully performing this thing in a context which is actively dangerous to him. And being presented as a baby means that he's like a neophyte in this world. And yet at the same time, by the process of assimilation, he is creating a world in which it is safe for him to come out because he has proven himself to be violent. Like, I don't know. I can't, I can't quite get at it but that's what i'm circling around at the end of the comic biddy will by, by the end of the comic i mean by the end of check please biddy will in fact win the big hockey game he'll win the big like ncaa championship by ramming himself into another player and knocking a tooth out and like ending up in the stands or something so actually i think he ends up like in the team's bench or something So this moment, in a sense, is like character development, because before he couldn't check anybody. And then very gradually, he was able to like, sort of like nudge, like, get out of my way (laughs) at another guy on the ice, which I think technically counts as a check. And that's what Jack and Shitty are so happy about, because Biddy has been afraid of like, making physical connections with other players on the ice which again is what you have to do when you play hockey which is why the premise of this comic is fucked up but we're way past that now so this is him slowly but surely developing and becoming a better player and like growing and then he gets into the locker room with jack after this game and jack is like (laughs) super impressed with what he's wrought. Indeed. And the panel where they have this fist bump makes me feel 
insane, like in a really good way. Like when I look at it, it still fizz, fills me with fizzy, bubbling, like blah, feelings that the best of Checklist makes me feel. First of all, like, do you also feel this way about this panel or did you ever? No. I appreciate that this actually is on track with a story that's being told. Because we have this whole thing about how Jack is very stingy with fist bumps. The cheapest gesture known to man, Jack Zimmerman, can hardly manage to give out. You want to know what this is actually? Jack is with fist bumps the way that I am with leaving emojis for my coworkers on Slack. You can't make me do it. Other people giving them out like hard candies at an oof but me, you really have to impress me for me to use my one emoji, the black sparkly heart. Jack is like that with fist bumps and he gives one to Biddy. And this makes a lot of sense because we've set up all of this stuff about how, A, they've gotten a lot closer. So Jack is a lot more willing to like meet Biddy where he is. And B, Biddy has improved in hockey. So he's done the thing that Jack was like, mostly unwilling to give him at the beginning of year one. That makes sense. That said, was I pleased about it or excited about it? Honestly, when I first saw this comic, Tomato, I was just so fucking happy that Check Please was posting that I literally was like on... Actually, I was also in a hotel room at the time with my friend... And I basically just, like, got up and started running around the fucking room, flapping my hands like a little bird. I was so pleased that Check Please was back. I was hardly paying attention to the content of the comic, except, of course, for shitty throwing fries, which paralleled how I felt. But I wasn't thinking about the meaning of this gesture at the time. Now, I will, my arms squeaking as I reach into my pockets... Throw a few pieces of candy at Ngozi's feet for continuing some themes over what I admit is like three years of storytelling at this point in real time. Got it. Well, I'm going to take my own hard candies, this bag of Werther's I bought for myself and just dump the whole thing. Because for me, this particular panel like made me feel nuts and still makes me feel nuts. And I think it's everything that I want Checklist to be. It's like that dramatic irony I mentioned earlier where like we know something and the characters know something, but the people around them don't know it. There's something really intimate there about the relationship between fiction and real world when you as the reader know something about the characters that other people in the world don't know there's like a special feeling that that gives me I think that also like we've talked a lot about this comic and queer representation and how (laughs) doesn't work for me Uh, and I don't actually really care about queer representation as such but the kind of queer stories that do tend to work for me are the kind that discuss like coded communication and clandestine emotion and and things like that. And so I think for me, this is like the queerest that Check Please ever feels because it uses that trope. It uses that rhetoric in order to celebrate this queer love story that like dare not speak its name in the locker room, you know? And then I also think that there's something about the homoeroticism of like (laughs) Biddy, you know, rubbing arms with another man on the ice as their blades clash or whatever that then translates into this fist bump that 
that aggression being translated from this athletic context to like an emotional and romantic sexual context, but that can't be expressed fully and therefore is expressed only through this glancing touch. To me, that's like delicious. So I really like that as well. I think it's very funny that Jack's love language is like, nice job, nice, nice job there, bits. Yeah, good, nice. Also, my magnum opus that I've never written, but someday will. The fact that they have this conversation where Biddy's like, oh yeah, I had a good teacher. And Jack says, ha ha, yeah, I heard he was really hard on you. And then Biddy says, he was, but he knew what was good for me. Fill in the accents yourself. Sorry, everybody. I find this really fucked up and therefore I'm delighted about it because on the one hand, yeah, yeah, sure. They're just having this like funny little secret conversation about Jack's coaching Biddy. But as discussed for the previous two years of this comic, that situation is insane. And so I am obsessed with the fact that they support each other in a way that is weirdly parental. I feel like he was hard on me, but he knew what was good for me is like your classic dad, especially your classic coach dad situation. And therefore, in this moment, Jack takes on the position of Biddy's dad, much in a way that later Biddy will take in the position of Jack's mom through the way that he caretakes Jack. And like, I think that is like psychosexually insane and fucked up. And therefore, I love it. Also, Jack winks, and I think that's really funny because he's never suave. He's a big idiot. And yet this one time he manages to be suave because no one knows anything that's going on and therefore he can like be emotionally available for one second. Jack has had to grow up really fast. I guess a lot of, well, first of all, I think he's had to grow up less fast than a lot of people, but he has gone from being a college student that is basically somebody who's in the position of like learning and being a kid so to speak and like a dumb little idiot figuring out who you are to being king of hockey in well literally his boss came to his graduation go back and listen to the episode he's basically had no time to adjust in any sense and he's pretty much a dad now in the sense that he has adopted the signifiers of the hockey men around him. He's dressed in this comic for some reason, like he is 53 years old. He didn't used to dress like this. Like, I don't think he, I didn't go back and reread the whole comic, but I don't think he used to wear like a quarter zip to like hang out at the house. He would wear like a hoodie, a t-shirt, a rolled up sleeves shirt with a t-shirt. Very like college jock, kind of soft men's athleisure thing. Now he's dressing like like a dad, basically. Uh, find me a normal 25-year-old man who owns a sweater like this. That's all I have to say. Exactly. He's adopting the aesthetic of the hockey world, which is an aesthetic devoid of personality and therefore like adopting the the dadly, I mean, my dad doesn't dress like this, but the sort of dadly signifiers of Americana or whatever. I don't know. And I think especially the fact that Biddy looks like literally a baby when he's checking this guy and then when he's fist bumping Jack, though it's supposed to be romantic. It has the sort of soft yellow background that sometimes Ngozi gives to these romantic moments where the rest of the world fades away. But like Biddy, although he looks more adult than sometimes he does in comparison to Jack, this is like a man and his son. And so I just can't, I don't know, like I can't resolve the like psychosexual bizarreness of this moment in a way that is 
uh, anything other than insane. And that's why I write fanfic. And so you can like investigate that on your own time. But there's just something in this moment that like it's it's supposed to be so sweet and wholesome. Haha, ha, they're having a secret communication. But through the, you know, visual language of the comic and through the weird dynamics that they end up in, there's just something really strange going on here about Jack, right, being thrust into this adult world, adopting the perspective of that world. I really appreciate how you put that coming back into the college space. And then Biddy, who is not only younger than Jack, but still in this college space and also quite young in other ways, and also a baby in hockey, as opposed to Jack, who is like the king of hockey, as you mentioned, there's something really interesting about their power differential here and how Jack is so far above Biddy power-wise, physically, emotionally, professionally, whatever. And yet we're not supposed to look at any of that. And they're supposed to be like on a totally equal playing field. No big deal. One thing I actually kind of like here that I've only just put together is that Biddy has this like half serene, half smug little look on his face in the last panel after he and Jack discuss that they're gonna see each other at the party. And like whiskey whiskey and tango are having conversation about the signed jersey and i think part of the thing with the jersey is that whiskey and tango are talking about like oh this little fragment this little worthless fragment of jack that's like disposable that to them means so much is like nothing compared to what biddy knows he secretly has in jack's his affection his time, his attention. His fist bump. His penis in some sort of chastity contraption. So, like, it's this little look of, like, internal satisfaction that he feels bad for these boys who are like, oh, you got this special Jack Zimmerman thing. When really, Biddy has the most special Jack Zimmerman thing. That is, again the key that unlocks the thing that Jack's penis is in. Wow. What a climax of this episode, huh? Do you have anything else you want to add about this panel? Jack likes a cock cage. I mean, does he like it? I don't know. But certainly he benefits from it. You know what I mean? He takes well to direction. Biddy has that key in his locker. Someone asks, what is that? Biddy's like, just for the house. Don't worry. Oh, that's that key to the basement that shitty taped into the couch. I can't, I I, I lost my handle on the accent. Speaking of shitty, I did want to talk a little bit about shitty and how he went from this man who loved to be, you know, dick out, dick out, stash out all the time or whatever, and how he has become sort of this Harvard stereotype. And Ngozi points to this in the author's notes. That's why I bring it up. And so I'm curious, like, Okay, so shitty, like, nothing happens with that guy. He goes to Harvard, he's fine. Maybe he, you know, has an illegitimate child with Lardo in their artistic house, or maybe not. Who can say? But what is the contrast of shitty in his dad clothes to Jack in his dad clothes? What does that do in this comic, in your opinion, I guess? Well, will you actually read aloud, please, what Ngozi writes about shitty in the notes This is the first time we're seeing Shitty in year three, by the way. So we literally have not seen him since graduation. So Ngozi writes in bold as a call, is Shitty wearing a tweed coat? And then in response, she writes, it sure does have elbow patches, doesn't it? He went from no clothes and lots of hair to dork clothes and no hair, zero to 100 miles per hour. They grow up so fast. Oh, but then the next one is the call. Jack and Shitty is out. 
alums, alums, don't know how to say that, watching Samwell men's hockey, supporting the crew. And then as a response, Ngozi writes, Shitty is happy to be away from all those horrible can tabs, and Jack is a maelstrom of emotion because his adorable secret boyfriend is playing ice game, and nothing is better than boyfriend and ice game. Well, the thing about boyfriend and ice game is just like, ugh, like, internet speak that I don't care to engage with. But in terms of shitty, my actual reaction to this is like, Shitty did not just walk around naked in public. Like, I know it's funny to be like, haha, naked man, hoo-hoo. But he would be wearing his underwear basically in his own home. He'd be like hanging out like just this is not atypical for college. I really don't think. I think if we go back and we talk about like shitty and the our earliest episodes of the podcast, maybe we get into this a little bit. I was constantly just like in my underwear or like showering naked with my roommates like when I was in college. Was that a little bit unusual? I, surely. But my point is that when you're in your own space for the first time at college and you're rebelling against whatever it is that you had going on back in your parents' house, I think just like being scantily clad and walking around shirtless or walking around only in your underwear, like in your own space, like with your people who you feel very close to and secure with is honestly like not that random and outlandish a behavior. Of course, it is the sort of thing that like your college friends would be like, oh, ha ha, old shitty. But the point is, this is something that he would be doing like in his home. He was not going to the class, going to the ice rink, going out in public, not wearing clothing. In general, the clothing that he wore was the sort of silly, like, vintage hipstery, ironic things. And my guess would be that what he is doing now is also ironic. I don't think somebody who is wearing a torn-off leather biker vest and an American flag bandana one autumn is wearing a tweed blazer with patches the next autumn fully seriously he's doing some kind of funny haha i'm in law school at harvard isn't that a hoot hitting on the square cutesy thing we already talked about he felt compelled because of like family whatever to cut his hair off he never really fully grows it back out for the rest of the comic, which is basically just like, yeah, it's probably what a college student who cuts their hair off would do. But it also wouldn't be grown out at this point anyway. Like, he cut it off in May, and this is like, what, September or October, maybe? So, like, I know he's a cartoon character, but weirdly enough, haircuts mean a lot in this comic, and they don't just go from one thing to the next. They actually, people's hair either, like, grows out or or whatever, like, very gradually over, like, in kind of real time throughout the comic. So she does have a point here. When he was in college and he didn't really have anything doing except for the hockey team and school, he could act a little bit more like an idiot. But now that he's in law school and he has to be at least quasi-serious about what he's doing, and it's the first month or two that he's in law school and he's probably feeling very overwhelmed and working really hard... Yeah, he's a little bit more reserved. I don't know if that's a they grow up so fast thing. Like when we see him the next year of the comic in his own house again, he is once more naked and screaming about how their fourth roommate or fifth roommate or whoever the fuck this person is 
wasn't chill enough to be a freak or whatever. I feel like there's some evidence that Shitty, in fact, does revert to the mean. I guess I'm also thinking about, in a more meta sense, so Shitty and Jack are both at this moment assimilating, whether with irony or not, into the contexts that are around them, aka becoming their dads or becoming their partner's dads. But like, I don't want to think about that as Shitty and Lardo. I'd rather just not engage with that. Shitty story doesn't go anywhere, uh, only in our hearts, but not on the page. But I do think there's something interesting. If we see Jack as adopting this NHL perspective, and then eventually he's going to sort of bucket in a homonormative way, but still like, you know, he's going to be a gay hockey player or whatever. I don't know. There's something maybe interesting interesting to think about Shitty in terms of whether he too will remain in this super normative, super traditional environment he's found in. To be clear, again, the comic doesn't do anything with this, but you, the fan creator, can. Maybe also about growing up and what the comic is actually saying about growing up and what it means to sort of assimilate into the world beyond Samwell and what it means to adapt to the world beyond Samwell, which maybe is also interesting to think about. Ngozi's doing this in grad school. What does this mean for Ngozi? I don't want overly speculate about that but there may be something interesting there well it's interesting actually this was about a year after she graduated actually that she's drawing this comic oh from grad school yeah like this particular comic is spring of 2016 and she would have graduated in the spring of 2015 so that's right yeah she's been out of out of grad school and i guess she's trying to sign her way in terms of making this comic her primary source of income and setting up a Patreon and running a Kickstarter and all this other stuff. I don't know what else she was doing on the side to make money. And to be honest, it's probably not my business, except in the sense that, well, actually, the business of art is kind of everybody's business. That said, I actually wrote a fanfic with (laughs) just one. I wrote one fanfic. No, I wrote a fanfic. It is called Elegy for the Overmedium Egg. It's a bit weird. You don't necessarily have to go and read it. The only reason why I'm bringing it up is because it does actually primarily deal in Shitty's assimilation into the world and what parts of him and his relationship and his adulthood are just sort of like fully assimilated and what parts of him are still actually unconventional and it's a real mix i think i theorized the way in which well you grow up and you have other people in your lives and in this case shitty had a kid and you have to live in some sense on the world's terms nobody really can completely depart from all social structures that simply doesn't work like you in fact would end up outside of the bounds of society in a way that would be like harmful to you and the people who care about you if you fully rejected everything. And she was never doing that in the first place. He's on a hockey team. He's in college. So it's not like he was ever all that iconoclastic. But also, I think the binary of like, you've totally sold out and like you're with the man now versus you're a free spirit and you're doing whatever's weird is kind of a false one because people are complex and we all have to like go along with certain strictures because we exist in a society and that is kind of what that means not to be too like sophomoric about it but also i do think that like if you are a weirdo and i believe that your hosts of this podcast are weirdos 
tomato on the other side of the camera giving me like a thumbs up and a nod like mm -hmm, yeah it thinks that most people do find a way to protect themselves and protect the parts of themselves that are idiosyncratic and unusual and that's not to say that like i'm not a sellout and i'm staying at this hotel that gave me this free can of water but yeah the process of growing up for somebody like shitty and I guess also somebody like Jack, although Jack is kind of like in some ways more conventional at the outset, is going to be figuring out where he has to sort of give in to social expectation because at this point it's making his life easier and the lives of the people he cares about easier to just shut up and go with the flow and what parts of himself he is going to retain and allow himself to protect as an idiosyncratic, antisocial weirdo. It's just kind of like, that's what life is. It's like, I want to be able to take a shower with like decent water pressure every 10th time I take a shower, like if I can help it. I don't want anything in my life to be a hard struggle. Sometimes you have to give something in order to just like not fucking fight against every aspect of society every single day. And in some senses, what happens when you graduate from college is you leave this protected environment where all of a sudden you have to decide which fights am I going to keep having because this would compromise my identity and which fights am I just going to give in on because you want to know what? I want to eat a fucking vegan peanut butter chocolate chip cookie while I podcast with my free water and take a nice shower because life fucking sucks. That's a really good fanfic, by the way, that you mentioned, and people should go read it. I bring it up literally only to point to... I know. ...that I've personally thought through at some point in the past several years, how would Shitty do this negotiating? What would he still think is worth protecting about himself and his own values? And when would he basically just be like... I don't know, man, it's too hard to be a fucking weirdo. I guess I'm just going to have to be a normal adult man and have a job and make money so that I can, like, feed my child or whatever. I know, but I love that fic, so I'm saying that people should read it. But, yeah, I mean, I think that's also really interesting when I think about Jack and when I think about Jack as, like, reading him as an autistic character and like the ways that Jack has been forced from a very young age. You say he's more conventional from the outset and he is, and also he isn't right. Like he is forced from a very young age by virtue of his father's fame and his own skill and like his own expectations for himself and whatever to sort of divest himself from everything that could be something that could hurt him because of the constant scrutiny he's under. And I guess that's sort of like, you know, we're all under that scrutiny to a certain extent, but, you know, for some characters, it, like, is literally the media, and for the rest of us, it's just, like, our neighbors and moms or whatever. Um, and that's interesting also when I think about it in terms of Biddy. Like, Biddy doesn't really have to make those compromises. That's maybe one of the things that's frustrating about the comic is that Biddy seems like he's going to have to, then he doesn't, and then his, like, rich husband just supports him through all of his dreams. And so Biddy never ends up having to compromise on these fights because Biddy wins. And so that's kind of an interesting maybe way to go into the rest of year three, thinking about what does it mean that Biddy wins and what does it mean for the story, you know, the comic's ultimate portrayal of growing up and how much of that is escapism, how much of that is bad writing. I don't know. I guess we'll discover. The backstory of Biddy 
is that he was formed by the fact that his football coach father, whose name, by the way, is Coach. Actually, his name is Rick, but he's referred to as Coach, made Biddy play football where he was tormented by toxic masculine culture, effectively. The other players on the team apparently locked him in a closet at one point, or somebody locked him in a closet at one point. No, it was a locker. Actually, this really betrays, like, how much of what's in my brain about this comic is actually just, like, cuckoo fandom fan and stuff. He was bullied and locked in a, I think it was a supply closet. You know what I'm fucking talking about. And then the other thing that happened to him was when he was physically playing football, like, which he had to do because his father was a football coach and he was expected to play football, the other team tackled him and called him the F word, or as we say on Tumblr, the F slur. So like, at the end of Check Please, what Biddy ends up doing is becoming the captain of the sports team. And also, again, his team wins the NCAA championship with him, I don't know, fucking ramming himself into a guy, like really displaying a lot of masculine aggression. What Biddy gives up effectively is part of what made him him was that he was not this type of person. He was not the sort of person who would be physically violent and like ram himself into something. And he's basically killed the part of himself that makes him actually unlike every other hockey player, which is that he doesn't want to engage in physical violence. And the comic sets it up as it's like he has a fear that he needs to overcome. But it's actually like not inherently within him that he practiced this kind of toxic masculinity. And by the end of the comic, he can and will and does. That's kind of what he sells off. Like the fact that everybody's okay with the fact that he's, you know, a little bay baking Southern Belle type is because when it matters, when push comes to shove, able to actually like perform this behavior as well. So people will take him see and it's like, it's all fucked up and we'll talk about it and we'll get there. But it's like, yeah, of course, like Biggie does have to trade what it is about himself that makes him different in order to basically assimilate into these expectations. Like you said it earlier. I mean, that's basically what he has to do. And like, yeah, it's true. You know, he wasn't like, he's never like a countercultural anything except in the fact that like he's a hockey player who's a feminist and likes men openly versus these other ones who do it on the fly. I mean, this is the thing. I guess if there's a, a deeper hidden meaning in check please, it's partly that it's sort of showing the things that people have to give up about themselves in order to basically like make their way through their lives without every moment being a struggle. But the thing is, even though I think this is textually very much there, I don't necessarily think that it's the intended or dominant reading. I think it's just sort of something that we're picking out. Yeah, that's true. I I hadn't thought about it in that way, although you're totally right. With shitty, it's something that Ngozi points to and talks about and thinks about in this like little note where there's like an obvious difference between shitty at the end of year two and shitty in year three. 
And for Biddy, maybe it's more gradual. And also Biddy is like less openly frustrated about having to adopt it. Maybe that's why it feels less like this giving up. But you're right. It is. It is this giving up. And so the pies just get more and more filled with aggression, I guess, as opposed to, I don't know. There's also something then about, well, didn't finish that sentence. Anyway, there's also something about growing up here and like, right, assimilating into this world around you so that everything is not a struggle. And also so that you can fulfill the desires of the people who have made you like Jack becoming, you know, a hockey player not for his dad, but totally for his dad and shitty becoming a lawyer, not for his dad, but for his dad and, and his mom and uh, Biddy becoming a hockey player, if not a football player, you know, not for his dad, but yes, for his dad. Like there is something about the necessity of giving up, I guess, the specifics in order to fill that role that the your parents give you, which then sort of feeds into the weird parental thing between Jack and Biddy. More depressing than I thought it was. Wow. While we're thinking about Ngozi professionalizing and exiting the world from graduate school and kind of making Check Please her main livelihood, or trying to at least, the store opened at this time. It's noted in the author's notes and it sold out really, really quickly. So we can start to see the success of Ngozi's transition from hobbyist and student to professional comics artist making an original comic. And uh, you mentioned that the year two Kickstarter launched September 20th, 2016. So just a couple months after this strip. And so we can start to really track that shift um, and maybe even think about the ways that the demands of the market shape the narrative as well and how maybe that shifted as Ngozi entered the professional world and was responding to the demands of her audience because she relied on them for income in a way that she hadn't necessarily before. The sort of week when this Kickstarter launched, we should probably talk about when we get to those comics, because that was a wild week in the life of my fandom. I didn't I didn't buy it when this merch store round happened, but when it opened up in the fall, I bought a Sam Wellman's hockey t-shirt that I do have to say is like one of my favorite t-shirts. First of all, nobody has ever asked me what Sam Wellman's hockey is. No one is curious. Nobody cares just out in the world, wearing it all the time, nobody noticing. People just presume it must be some kind of hockey team. They're they're not asking any questions. But so it's good merch in that sense. And it's not like, I like Iron Man or whatever. It's just a really nice shirt. Soft, fits well, kind of a maroon. Good shirt. A handsome shirt. I've seen it over Zoom, so I know. I think you've seen it in person, even. Tomato... This is where we are in the comic that I, like, remember exactly where I was when these strips were, like, rolling out. And I remember exactly where I was when this strip debuted. I mentioned before that I was so excited when it posted. I was on a road trip in the Lake District, and the next day was the European Union referendum in Britain. So basically the United Kingdom, the day after this strip posted, voted to Brexit. And I simply will never forget because it was just a confluence of so many things happening. I think that check please led to Brexit is where we should leave with this strip. So what are we going to read next time? Well, I really don't want people to think about, like, where we were in life. Anyway, here's where we're going. 3.5, the after kegster. Well, people want to find me. They can find me at Tumblr under the names C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, familiar, or S-K-R-T-O-M-G at, uh, you know, T-U-M-B-L-R dot C-O-M. 
or I'm on AO3 under familiar. How about you, Tomato? Uh, I am failing to transition smoothly all the time at tomatorights.tumblr.com or on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. And you can also find our podcast on Podbean or Spotify, Spotify at Check Displeased. And who knows? This many years after this, co- this uh, oh my God, this many years after this podcast started, maybe I'll finally get us an Apple Podcasts. But uh, don't put your eggs in that basket. Don't talk to me about failing to transition smoothly. <laughs> okay. I think at this point we say goodbye. I, I would also, I would tell people that it's really been a while since we recorded a podcast, as is probably evident. I think we'll do better next time. I think so too. For the After Kegster. Bye. Goodbye. Check This Please is written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato, and our art is by Nahangan. That was very legit.